right, if you have your Bible or an app on your phone and you want to turn to Amos chapter 3, that's where we'll be for this morning. You know, it's, it's important to hear the lyrics that we sing, lest we sing words we don't mean. And so we have sung already just a minute ago. Well, here I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to give this up to you. And so hopefully that is, for the moment, our desire to give the moment and time for God to speak to us. I'm going to read from Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I have brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have made an appointment Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from its den if it has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into the snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster befall a city unless the Lord has done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Would you pray with me? Lord God, we all face pressures. Sometimes it is that we understand the importance of what it means to be your people, to be in your family. Other times, we willfully get swept up in habits that deny your words. We follow the old lies proven untrue, and yet we defend these lies as truth itself. Thank you, Lord, for your grace-filled pressure when we hear your past, your present, and the hope of your future, which means your grace will always work its pressure on your people so that though we we may be unfaithful, there is a witness that you are always faithful to us, even when we are uncomfortable. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all God's people say. Listen, we did everything we knew to do. In fact, we had phone calls from the uh, fellow who tests and makes sure our uh, sprinkler system in this building is functioning well. He called and said, please, here are some things to do. So if you've passed through the breezeway here between these two buildings and you've seen ceiling tiles, it's not negligence. It's what he said to do. Make sure you pop a few ceiling tiles so that the heat 
from the buildings can kind of get up in there because a few years ago we had frozen pipes we didn't know about and God spared us a flooded building. So we were trying to do everything they told us to do, just like they told you on the news or someone stopped and said to you. And so I called the plumber and I said, Nick, would you tell us it's going to be really rough. What should we do? Here are the things to do. We knew to do them. He reiterated them. We dripped water in these showers. And so, for instance, men may have walked into the restroom and seen boxes strewn everywhere. We've got a little storage area in there for some of our Wednesday night uh, food sacks, but we pulled them out so that they wouldn't get wet if we dripped the water in there because just a few years ago we had a pipe burst and to access it you had to go through the shower. We were wanting to be as diligent as everybody else was because they said this was going to be some of the worst cold on record. It was, right? Despite all of our efforts, just like so so many people, we missed one place. We didn't miss one place that we tried to keep warm. We just missed one place that just is often exposed. Over there, the lean-to in the old building, uh, Laura's in the cafe, and she goes to Rusty and says, should I hear water running? Looking out the breezeway, Rusty says, we should not have water running out of that little room right there. So we cut the water off and worked at it, and we called the plumber and said, hey, I bet you're busy. Oh, we're making call after call after call after call. So Scott Landis said, hey, uh, did you have any issues? And we said, yes. He said, well, I'll see if I can't fix it. So I told Nick, don't worry about it. Nick, uh, Scott's going to take care of it. And, and he, uh, he did. It took a little bit. We, ha- we learned that copper swells. So you've got to do a little more work. But there we were, just like everybody else, trying to get out of the deep freeze without a lot of damage. Some people didn't make it out of the cold. The USA Today carried James E. Cossey's article that included these descriptions. A 64-year-old man was pronounced dead at 1.40 p.m. Friday near South 5th Street and West Layton Avenue under a bridge. A 69-year-old man was pronounced dead at 1.25 p.m. Saturday near North 35th and West Hadley Streets after being found in a vehicle that he used for shelter. A 40-year-old man was pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m. Monday near West Woolworth Avenue and North Sherman Boulevard. The medical examiner in Milwaukee is determining whether hypothermia was the cause of these three deaths. And in his article, the one that the USA Today carried, James Causey asked this question. Whose responsibility is it to protect the unhoused when it's freezing outside? The city? The state? Homeless shelters? The church? If Amos were answering the question... If Amos had picked up the USA Today and he read Cossie's article, he probably would have mumbled to himself, or loud enough for everyone in any cafe to hear, all of us. Listen, if we could map Amos 1 to 3 onto the description of the individuals and the questions Cossie raises, here's how it would sound. 
Here's how we might read if Amos were giving account. The city will face fire for its lack of concern. The state will face fire for the lack of statewide statutes. Homeless shelters will face fire for not building large enough shelters. And churches? Churches will face the fire for knowing who their neighbor is and not caring for those who are freezing to death. Now remember, remember, I warned you that Amos was an equal opportunity offender. The the late Frederick Buechner, in his book, Peculiar Treasures, wrote this, When Amos, the prophet Amos, walked down the main drag, it was like a shootout in the Old West. Everybody ran for cover. Now, before you duck down behind those in front of you, Remember, I'm not Amos. But we should hear Amos's words since we, by God's grace, have been made to be a part of those deemed God's people. In Amos's words, here's what Amos says. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family. When we read whole family in Amos 3, This includes God's people through time. So stretching that bony finger of his all the way through the centuries, Amos yet speaks to us. God still speaks to us. These are words for us, as much as they were words for them. On your bulletin, you'll notice in that graphic, uh, you'll notice it in the lower right side, you'll see a bullseye with a steepled building in the center. Amos. Amos began identifying all the nations around Israel, if you'll remember, all six of them. It was as though he were encircling Israel and and demonstrating how that each of these nations had behaved poorly. And remember, he, he issued this formula for three transgressions, and then for the fourth, here's what I'm going to do, and I won't reverse it. In other words, I've been patient with your three transgressions, with the things you're doing, but this fourth one is over the top. It puts you over the edge. And remember, we mentioned even last week that what might have happened, what might have occurred in Judah and particularly in Israel, because all of these messages were ahead. That is, they were ahead of the message to Israel. Israel might have sat there with their finger pointed at every other nation. Oh, I see what you're doing I see what you're, God sees what you're doing smugly, ever so smugly. Israel might have been sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, we know about you and so does God. And when Amos gets to Judah, that seventh, that seventh nation just to the south of Israel, that half of its former kingdom, When Israel hears what comes to Judah, things change. And and what changes is that Judah, remember, is part of the southern kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. The north and the south. There's division between God's people. I, I refuse to put any editorial commenting there. You can supply... There it is, the division that happened, and you can imagine those from the north hearing the sheep raiser from the south come to their 
land and then point the finger at his own hometown, they're like, yeah, even you, Judah. We know what these nations that surround us have done, but even you, Judah. But there's something different that happens in the accusations given to Judah. Judah, the tribe from which the Messiah would come. Judah, the place where Jerusalem was located. Judah, the place where the temple stood. Something different happens. The accusation is that Judah, Judah and Judah's inhabitants are included in the book of doom because they have rejected God's instructions because they have ignored God's statutes. He said it this way, they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. Now, the two words here, the word for uh, law and the word for statutes are, one, one is a word that's best translated, the instructions of the Lord. God has given you his instructions. Statutes would, would probably be um, a, a reference to the Ten Commandments. So God has instructed you that you are his people, and here's what it looks like to be his people and how you relate to those in the world around you. And probably more particularly, the in- emphasis, because of what happens then next, is, is on the second table, what we call uh, the second part of the Ten Commandments, the part that deal with how we relate to those around us. Not the first few that deal about how we respond to the God who is revealing Himself to Israel and so to us in Jesus Christ, but what that means in our relationships with those around us. Don't steal, don't kill, don't covet, don't commit adultery. You, you hear those, right? You hear those. If you're going to be my people, the character with which you will affect your social contract with one another is you will treat other people as I'm treating you. And so I'm caring for you, you care for them. In fact, in fact, when we take when we take all that we know about what God is up to in the world, we take from this that God's determination not to be God without us is what forms us, knowing that we cannot be human without Jesus, and get this, and all others. In other words, it's impossible to demonstrate what it is to be human if there aren't others to whom we can present what it is to be human. In other words, our spirituality is not in isolation. We are not only after a relationship with God. If we want people to know what a relationship with God looks like, it will show up in our relationship with each other. Therefore, we can't say that we know what it is to be human apart from being in Christ, and we can't let anyone know that if we're not including others, even if they're sleeping in their car. So God's God's going to do something about that. God's going to exert some pressure. And so when you get to the latter part of chapter 2, this is what you get. I'm going to bring pressure on you. That's that's the picture. In In fact, it's a picture of an overloaded cart. So I will press down in your place just as a cart presses down when it's full of sheaves. I'm going to bring pressure. If Judah's fourth transgression was setting aside, God's, setting aside God's instructions, ignoring the shape God's people were to take by keeping the Ten Commandments 
and their relationship with those, then Israel's fourth transgression was the practice that followed from Judah's fourth transgression. Maybe I should put it this way. If we could follow the sequence, everything Amos has said to the prevailing nations also applies to Judah and to Israel. And when Israel hears Judah scolded for not remembering the instructions and not keeping the statutes, they are included. In other words, the noose is tightening, if you will. The circle is getting closer while Israel's up there thinking, oh, we are doing well. They make the discovery, oh, we are them. We've sat here smugly thinking that, oh, can, it's about time God visited these people with fire. We've been having to deal with them at our borders for a long time. It's about time the one who said we were his people took care of our enemies. It's about time God gets them. But by the time Amos is finished, by the time we get to chapter 3, and what we read a moment ago, Amos has said, guess what? You are them. It's a cumulative effect. In other words, Israel was practicing the very same things they saw in the tribes around them. And here's the deal. They should have known better. Those nations surrounding Israel, they didn't have God's instructions and they didn't have God's Ten Commandments. They knew better. And yet they willfully decided against what God had designed and desired for them. They were guilty of a greater degree because they had God's design for how People should be treated, and yet they picked up. Well, you listen to the description. Now, I thought about giving you the commentaries, you know, translation or interpretation of these various things, but I, I actually think that in plain English, right there in front of you, or as you listen, you'll be able to figure out what these people are up to, what Israel is accused of, what they're guilty of. Because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken as a pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with the fines they imposed. That sounds like a great group of folks, doesn't it? They really sound like a group of people who understand that the God who loved and cared for them, liberated them out of Egypt, took care of all their enemies. They knew how to turn that around and love their, love their enemies, right? They sound like a, a very ethical and moral group of people, a, a people who don't oppress anyone, who, who don't treat people. You, you, you get the sarcasm, don't you? They, like Judah, knew better. They had the Lord's instructions and they had God's statutes. They knew better, and yet they were as guilty, and in the descriptions, they were as specifically oppressive as any Pharaoh had ever been to them in their past. They were guilty. Amos 1 through 3 is God's complaint 
against those who knew they were made in the image of God, had experienced the liberty, love, and freedom provided by that God, and yet then turned around and scorned the image of Jesus and oppressed their neighbors both near and far. I would say that if they were your children, you would have applied a little pressure. Right? Come on. Right? If your children made in your image behaved in these ways toward your neighbors, you would have not just been embarrassed, you would have applied some pressure. And some of us grew up in a day where that meant the backside was warmed up. God's remedy for the preservation of his people was to say, I'm going to bring pressure on your place. And here's what we ought to know. Some date uh, Amos around 760 B.C. because in the early verse, if you remember, there's a reference to an earthquake. The only earthquake uh, um, that fits kind of this era or this time frame that's uh, considered not just some small detail in the Bible is an earthquake that happened in about 760 B.C. And And in just 40 years... The span of what we consider a biblical generation, 40 years, in just 40 years' time, in 721 B.C., the northern kingdom fell, swept away. Now, that's pressure. The people who were to represent the people of God were swept away. And Amos 2 ends with a series of descriptions that end with this tragic image. Ready? And those who were stout of heart... Among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. God's pressure exposes the lack. Now, you do know that we're talking about imagery, metaphor, etc. So that they fled naked meant they fled away fully exposed for what they didn't have and what they didn't do and what they did do that was a violation of being made in the image of Jesus. These descriptions, these descriptions that we get at the end of chapter 2, that, that's, that's the lion's roar. If you remember when we introduced the, the series, we, we mentioned the, the roaring in chapter 1, and then we made a connection that the bookend is chapter 3, The Lion Roars. Now, I am not a hunter. I'm an accidental hunter. Accidentally, I happened upon a shotgun one time. And accidentally, I got lucky and hit a quail or two. But I am no hunter. I could not be convicted of hunting. Not in any court. So I, have, I don't know what a lion's habits are. And if you do, and I'm, I'm wrong, you feel at complete liberty to correct me. But what I understand from reading is, is that just prior to securing its prey, the lion roars. 
Now, you've been to either a circus or a zoo, and you've heard a roaring lion. And in close proximity, that sound, if unseen, sounds like it's surrounding you. And that's the intent. The roar of the lion is the last action before the lion vaults onto its prey. It's intended to be a surround sound of fear so that the prey doesn't know which direction to go. Where do I go? The lion's roar. This is what Amos describes in giving these words. He's surely hoping, surely the prophet hopes that the words that he is giving the people from the Lord will startle them like a lion's roar, that they will look up and not away, that they'll determine, hey, we have violated this image. The fact that Israel is swept away 40 years later seems to indicate that they, they didn't pay attention to the lion. The reason Amos is so difficult like Glenn mentioned a couple of weeks ago when he said, man, you read Amos, it's a little scary. When, the reason is, is, is because you've got all of Amos and only until the last couple of verses do you get any idea that it's going to get better. So we can't invite you here and say, okay, well, we're going to stop right there. Good luck to you. Hope you hear the lion's roar. Hope you decide against violating the image of Jesus in which you've been made. Oh, hopefully you'll hear the instructions of the Lord and heed the commandments. You'll be the sort of people that God wants you to be. And if not, just remember, you're going to flee naked. Good luck to you. But we are here on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, and so we have to give the good news. Or as my friend Jason says, we've got to deliver the goods. Amos has been given to see what comes. In, in fact, remember, surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Isaiah is actually telling them, listen, I see what's coming. God has given me a vision of the consequences that are going to come to you. God knows, I know, you know what you've done. And the, the consequences of what you've done are on their way. God doesn't need to do anything directly, indirectly. Your decisions are going to be your end. And he could leave it there. I, I can't imagine that Amos takes a glee in giving the news that God who made them in the image of Jesus will also just not care about them and wants to punish him for his sheer enjoyment. I mean, unless you want to project onto God your own enjoyment of punishing your children. Who wants to do that? Well, sociopaths, but none of you here, right? None, none here. So here, here if Amos is, is not taking any glee, then... He has to have some good news to which he points, right? And that's why we look at the good news that he does give. Israel could not and would not. The good news is God did, has, and does. If the scripture is the history of God with us, 
then Jesus the Christ is the revelation that God ensures that despite our affinity against the image of Jesus in us, God will do for us. Just the same way that despite the protestations and momentary rebellions of your own children, you persist, you persevere, you continue, you stay with. God can't be any less than the best of your vision for what you want to do in securing the future life of your own children. So we take the best of that image, not the worst of it, the best of it, and we at least can conceive that the God who made us wants the best for us. And so we'll do what he has done and always will do for us, even when we won't. In fact, God profiles his own history with Israel. I destroyed the Amorite before you. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I even raised up some of your children to be prophets. And then he says, isn't this so? I mean, doesn't that sound like what you've, you know, sat your child down and done? I brought you into... No, that's that's Bill Cosby. Um, We... We start at them, I, look at what I've done for you. I cannot believe. Tell me you've never had that exasperation, and I want to meet your children. No offense to my own. I probably did enough of my own provocations. Good news. The good news is that, that when human beings reject God's history, what he's done, even to the point of killing Jesus, the one in whose image we were made, God raised him from the dead and gave him back to us. That's the goods. And there at the end of Amos, something we have to always keep in mind as we retravel, retrace his words and his steps is, God intends to restore the fortunes of God's people. That's what he says. I mean, listen, after all the book of doom, you get to the end, and the last couple of verses are just all that God will do. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will restore the fortunes of God's people. If that doesn't form us, if that good news doesn't form us with the full knowledge that we've not always been faithful, yet he won't deny his commitment to us, that sure ought to be. I hope that forms us. I hope that shapes us. I hope it shapes us such to the degree that when we discover in our world our own participation in people freezing, we'll do different. In James Cossey's article, I, I think he exposes what happens and what we look like when we are formed by the pressure of grace. Remember his question? Whose responsibility is it to protect the unhoused when it's freezing outside? You substitute any circumstance that you can come up with. It doesn't have to be strictly the unhoused and freezing temperatures. There are plenty of people that surround us who need us to bear the image of God and His grace and love to them. But for the sake of this illustration, remember his question, whose responsibility is it to protect the unhoused 
when it's freezing outside? The city? The state? Homeless shelters? The church? His answer? Cossie's answer? Before he tells the story that is behind all of his peace, he says, I always thought that the church ought to be the one. And then he says, but let me tell you the story of the Ohio preacher, Chris Avell, arrested at his church on New Year's Eve. The pastor of Dad's place in Bryan, Ohio, was arraigned in court last Thursday, he writes, because he kept his church open 24-7 to provide warmth for the unhoused. Ohio law prohibits residential use in first floor buildings in a business district. Since the church is zoned as a central business, the building is restricted from allowing people to eat or sleep on the property. This is how I worship my God. I just want to be able to worship my God, Avel said. According, according to the city, Avel was sent a letter all the way back on November the 3rd informing him the homeless were prohibited from sleeping at the church overnight. Avel ignored the letter, and during a New Year's Eve service, police arrived and issued violations. Many of these people have been rejected by their families and cast aside by their communities. So if the church isn't willing to lay down its life for them, then who will? This is what we're called to do, Havel said in a Fox News interview. Jeremy Dice, attorney, called the city's actions unconscionable. The city would rather kick these folks to the curb in the cold outdoor months of December and early January to now allow the church to remain open 24-7 to those who need it most, this said. Causey concludes, in some ways, Avell was trying to prevent what happened in Milwaukee, people dying on the street in the cold. Amos started down his list to the other nations. For three transgressions, for the fourth, I will not I will not hold back for three transgressions and for four. Whatever pressures we feel we might face for failure to heed the instructions of the Lord, to live out what it looks like to be a people who practice the commandments of the Lord, we have been given opportunity to suffer so that we might demonstrate the suffering that was done on our behalf for our liberty, our freedom, and our well-being. For three transgressions and for four. Would you pray with me?